Hi there, I'm Sue Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 98. And today I want to talk about those ideas that make us feel uncomfortable, such as unschool maths. Yes, I know a lot of people are willing to let go of everything except maths. Why is that? And is that okay? Can we still call ourselves unschoolers if we are still insisting that our children do some structured maths? But before I get on to the main topic of this podcast, I have a couple of other things that I would like to add to last week's podcast. Yes, I never say things as well as I'd like. I sit here in front of the mic and I do have an idea about what I want to say, but I don't make elaborate notes. And always afterwards, when I'm listening to what I have recorded, I think to myself, oh, I wish I'd said this, or I wish I'd said that, or I didn't really explain that very well. Perhaps people will get the wrong idea. Well, that's what happened to me last week. Last week's episode, episode 97, was called Unschooling, Imposters and Difficult Times. I think that title must have attracted a lot of people. Unschooling, Imposters. Maybe people thought I was going to talk about the label unschoolers, how some people call themselves unschoolers and real unschoolers protest. They're not really unschooling, according to them, of course. Yes, maybe that's what everybody thought I was going to be speaking about. But if you listened to last week's episode, you will know that I was talking about myself, about how I felt like an unschooling imposter. Anyway, I told my Mother's Day story about how on Mother's Day, despite my children all going to a lot of trouble to make the day special for me, I didn't want to know about Mother's Day. I didn't want to celebrate. I didn't actually want to be a mother on Mother's Day. It just hurt too much. Too many of my children have problems and their pain became my pain. And as I said to my children and my husband, I just don't want to be a mother anymore. It hurts far too much. Nobody's hearts are as sensitive as a mother's, I'm sure. And maybe people listening to that episode will think that I don't want to be a mother, that I am not grateful for my family. And that's not true at all. That feeling of not wanting to be a mother didn't last very long. As soon as my daughter's arms were wrapped around me, as soon as I knew that they understood and didn't criticize or condemn me, I was very, very grateful for my children. I knew that I was very blessed to be a mother. Yes, I didn't want to be a mother at that time. I didn't want to feel the pain associated with my children and even my friends because sometimes other people's problems, we take on all the pain and suffering of other people. And sometimes it does feel a little bit too much. But I don't want to give the impression that I don't want that pain, that suffering, that I don't want to be a good friend or a mother because I do. I just had a bad day that day. I needed something myself. Because we can't give what we don't have. 
and on that day I needed something for my family so that I could keep on going. And of course I got it. The love that my kids and my husband showed to me was just what I needed. I soon got back on my feet. I also want to elaborate on something I think I did mention last week, and that was my husband's reaction. When I wasn't coping, when I was running around the house saying, I don't want to be a mother anymore, when I wasn't pleasant company, when I just did not know what to do with myself, instead of taking it personally and telling me that I had to behave better and to calm down and aren't I blessed to have my children and don't let the kids hear you saying that, all the things he could have said, what he did actually say was, Sue, it's okay. I can see that you're hurting very badly. Yes, I must have been hurting so much to behave in that way. He didn't take offense. He didn't take my behavior personally. And I think sometimes we tend to do this. If people around us are irritable, grumpy, bad-tempered, out of sorts, we want them to behave better around us. We think that we don't deserve the treatment that they are giving, or at the very least, we don't deserve to witness their irritability or whatever they're going through. Yes, pull up your socks and get on with life. We don't have to put up with this. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. How many times do we think that? How many times do we fail to show empathy to another person, to try and put ourselves in their shoes and forget about ourselves? What is making that person behave in this untypical way? So I'm very grateful for my family. Yet I was shown empathy. And maybe people are more inclined to show empathy towards adults. But what about kids, especially little ones? Quite often, I'm sure, because I've felt it before, we look at our kids' behavior and we do take it personally. We wonder why they're making life so difficult for us. Why aren't they behaving in a way that we'd like? Why are they doing things that we regard as bad behavior? We just want them to stop. Yes, I've had enough. Stop whining. Stop making so much noise. Stop fighting together. Just do as I say. I think that for some kids it can be very frustrating when parents aren't interested in why they're behaving badly or why they're behaving not as the parent would like them to. They would like to be listened to. They would like their feelings to be acknowledged. Maybe they can't put that into words, but everybody likes to feel understood. They would like to be shown some empathy. What are they going through? What are they feeling that's making them behave in this particular way? I guess this brings us on to the question of, is there such a thing as misbehavior? Or is it just the way kids behave when they can't cope, when there's something wrong? It might be inconvenient for a parent, but could it really be a call for help? There was something else I wanted to talk about from last week as well, and that's the update on our great weight loss adventure. You might know that a few of us in our family are watching what we're eating and exercising and keeping track of all our data via an iFitView wearable, which is a bit like a Fitbit. 
Once upon a time, I did laugh at my husband because he was calorie counting, and I said to him, "How can you live your life counting every single calorie that goes into your body? That's no fun at all. A real damper on life." So, how am I getting on counting my own calories? Because, of course, I've changed my mind about that particular idea. Well, I don't like calorie counting. And I am still of the opinion that I can't calorie count forever, but it has been very, very useful. Looking at what I am eating, I think I told you about this last week, but I've made a few more discoveries. One is that exercise doesn't burn up as many calories as we might think. I can get on the treadmill, I can do a long run, I can get off all sweaty and hot and feeling tired. And then I can go and have something to eat and use up all those calories really, really quickly. For example, one evening when most of the girls, my husband, were out at choir practice, Jimmerose and I were home by ourselves. And this is usually an evening of the week we spend some time together, watch a movie, make ourselves hot chocolate, do something special. And she found a bar of chocolate. And I looked at the chocolate, and I looked at her face, and I just knew that she wanted to share her treat with me. But also, I didn't really want to have too much because, as I said, I'm counting calories. So I said, "I'll have one square, please, Jimmerez. One square will be perfect."、Uh, I had no idea how many calories were in that one tiny square. I later found out that there were seventy-nine calories in one tiny square of Capri's raspberry chocolate. Wow, I have discovered that there is an advantage to tracking all my calories and all my exercise, keeping a note of what I'm doing, and that is I've become more disciplined. Instead of skipping a workout, thinking to myself, "Oh look, I ran yesterday and it was a good run," I think I'll just sit here and write a blog post instead, or I'll read a book. I don't think I'll bother exercising today. Instead of doing that, I'm tempted to do that, but the Thought of not having any data, of being behind on my calorie burn—that's enough to make me get on that treadmill and do something. When I go to my iFit Coach app, when I have done all my steps for the day, I get this notification. It says completed, and when I have burnt the necessary calories for the day, it also says completed, unless of course I have burnt more calories than recommended. And then I get this lovely notification that says "exceeded" in big capital letters, and I can't tell you how good that feels. When I don't feel like exercising or I don't feel like eating properly, it's the thought of the notifications that gets me back on track. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But it does make me accountable. What I'm hoping to do is get into really good habits of exercise and healthy eating, and then give away. All the tracking, just keep on going. But that's enough about exercise. Enough about calories. On to the main topic of the day. A couple of days ago, I wrote a blog post about ideas that make us feel uncomfortable. Quite often in discussion groups. Somebody will stop by and say, "I don't agree with that," and somebody else 
might say, perhaps the idea makes you feel uncomfortable. It's a good sign that maybe you have something that you need to change in your life. Don't dismiss it. And this got me thinking about ideas and how sometimes it is difficult to think about them deeply and make some changes. Throughout my life, there have been lots of ideas that I have initially rejected. I haven't wanted to think about them at all. In my mind, I have said that whoever told me about that idea is definitely wrong. It doesn't apply to me. And I am not going to adopt that idea. I've already mentioned how I did this for calorie counting. But something much, much bigger than that. The biggest idea that I had to turn around and face was becoming a Catholic. Oh wow, I was never going to do that. I was absolutely sure that that was impossible. I could never see myself doing that at all. Well, I did. And since that day, I should know better than to dismiss ideas. I should always have an open mind. I am learning that it is probably not sensible to project any ideas. Because I just don't know how I'm going to feel about them in the future. Where I am going to be led. I also said I'd never be sugar-free, never eat a sugar-free diet, or I'd never be a runner. Always there are good reasons why we can't face a certain idea. But I have found that some ideas stay at the back of my mind, even though I want to forget them. They nag at me, little by little, until I have to turn around and face them. It always happens at the perfect time, I think. There comes a point when we're ready to face the idea. Maybe this is good. Maybe we have to come to that point on our own. It's no good changing our ideas because somebody else has told us it's the right thing to do. It doesn't hurt to keep on talking about the idea, but we can't put pressure on people to adopt our ideas. But the idea I want to talk about particularly today, is unschool maths. I have spoken about this topic before in a podcast, but this time I thought I would approach it in a different way. I'm going to share some of my blog posts on this topic. I have had some good feedback about the blog posts that I've been sharing in my podcasts, and so I hope that you will enjoy listening to these stories. They will show you how my thoughts progressively changed about unschool maths. We started off as unschoolers who unschooled in everything except maths. And I think there are a lot of unschoolers who work in that way. Maths seems to be the last thing to go. I wonder sometimes why we hang on to it so tightly. Really, it's just another part of life. Maths is everywhere. Our children come in contact with maths every single day of their lives. I guess it's just recognizing that. Maybe also schools put such an emphasis on maths. And we worry about doing something very different. What will people say? Perhaps we're going to be jeopardizing our kids' futures if they don't know all the maths we think they need to know. It took me a long time to get to the stage where I was willing to let go of maths. I think I deceived myself. I told everybody that we were a family of maths lovers. My girls loved maths. 
That's why we would work our way through lots of problems. In reality, it was very convenient that they did maths. I had lots of exercise books full of maths to show our authorized person from the education department when she came to visit for our homeschool registration. It was so easy to prove that my girls were learning maths because, of course, they were. And I wondered, what am I going to do if I don't have books full of exercises with lots of ticks and stuff? How am I going to prove that they are learning maths? It was a bit of a problem, and I pushed it to the back of my mind for a very long time. But one day, I wrote this blog post. It's called Let's Talk Maths. My girls have been learning maths in a formal way, rather than as a consequence of life. But I have been thinking. The girls used to use workbooks, the sort that cover one school year at a time. They filled them in with correct answers and moved from book to book. And they didn't complain. It was interesting enough. It was just something that was expected and they did it. Then about 18 months ago, I found an online maths website which looked much more fun and enjoyable than the workbooks. The girls eagerly tossed aside the books, signed in with their usernames and started clicking. It was all very much a novelty for a while. Their mouse skills improved at a dramatic rate as they worked through the interactive activities, gaining credit points for their effort, which could be spent in the virtual rewards room. The girls enjoyed changing their avatars regularly and spending their credits as they put together virtual bedrooms, cubby houses, gardens, zoos. The girls leapt from activity to activity and finished the year's work in record time. Then it was on to a new year. Genie, or is that geniuses, in the making. Or so I thought. But just recently, I have noticed a decrease in interest in maths. Sophie, who used to consider herself a math magician, has started to say, I don't like maths. I'm not much good at it. I've been observing her working and have come to the conclusion that she has lost interest in accumulating points. Avatars and virtual rewards rooms have lost their sparkle. She has forgotten that maths is not a point-collecting activity. It does have another function. Online maths websites are using rewards to motivate children to learn. They might be more sophisticated rewards than the old gold stars and smiley face stamps of workbook days, but they're rewards all the same. And rewards are never a good way to learn. Learning needs to be done out of love or need. Take the rewards away and a child should still want to learn. I like maths very much. I really enjoy the satisfaction of working my way through a problem and obtaining the correct answer. To me, maths is an exercise in thinking, so maths can be enjoyable for its own sake. Or we might want to learn maths because we see a need for it. I think about how my girls learn English. I've never provided them with workbooks or vocabulary or spelling lists. They don't have to write book reviews or do comprehension tests pass sentences, or have formal grammar lessons. They have learned all they know about the English language by actually using it for real work. They write letters, make shopping lists, 
compose blog posts and stories, read other authors' writings, discuss ideas. They use English in similar ways to me. I haven't seen the need to set up artificial learning experiences in order for them to learn something which can be absorbed easily by real-life activities. Strewing good examples of English in their pathway and exhibiting my own active love of the subject has been enough to encourage my girls to want to learn English skills for themselves. They love working with words, and that is enough motivation to learn and to continue learning. But I have provided artificial learning experiences for my children in the area of maths. Could I toss away the workbooks and cancel the online maths courses? And would my children still learn what might be described as necessary maths skills? I have to admit that the online courses serve one function. They allow me to prove to the Department of Education I am teaching my children maths. I don't have to record every example of maths usage in my children's lives. I don't have to assess their math skills. If they have completed the course and achieved the certificates, then the Board of Studies is happy. It is easy for me. And I have been happy to compromise in this one area of education because after doing the required maths exercises of the day, I have felt able to give my children the freedom then to pursue their own interests and to really unschool. But is this compromise killing my children's love of learning? Will Sophie's dislike of maths and her opinion that she is no good at maths intensify? Should I throw caution to the wind and cut the last tie that is holding me to a conventional approach to education? Should I allow my children the freedom to learn maths in their own way, in their own time? I wrote that story about six years ago, so Sophie would have been ten and Jim Rose seven. And I did decide to throw caution to the wind and let my girls unschool maths. But that doesn't tell the whole story because my older girls were still learning maths in a structured way. They were coming to the end of their high school years. I was quite happy to let them continue learning from their workbooks, from their online courses. Again, I deceived myself. I told everybody that my daughter Charlotte loved maths and she was enjoying her course. I didn't actually ask her. She seemed willing to do it, I assumed. My daughter Imogen did actually finish an advanced maths course and... That really didn't have a lot to do with me because it was her decision. She decided that she might need the maths because at the time she was thinking of applying to a university to study medicine. So she took that upon herself. I actually found her a maths tutor to help her with that course. Imogen didn't actually apply to university to do that degree. She changed her mind about medicine and did a writing uh, degree instead. And she didn't need advanced maths. Looking back, Imogen said, as far as need goes, the maths course was a waste of time. She hasn't used any of that advanced maths. But there is one thing she did gain from it, 
and that is a sense of achievement, because she is the only Elvis child who has ever finished the advanced maths course. And when you're one of eight children, there aren't many things that you can say that you have done and your siblings haven't done. It is very inconvenient having to be a registered homeschooler. And to be a registered unschooler in our state of New South Wales, Australia, we have to fulfill certain requirements. And one of those requirements is that our kids are supposed to learn the math syllabus that they use in schools. It's all set out, all the skills that we are supposed to teach them that they are supposed to learn. How do we do that when we're unschooling? It can be a big problem at times. What I've been doing is strewing maths. I thought to myself, I strew lots of things like art and history, science, put things in the pathway of my girls, things that they might be interested in and see what happens. I enrich their environment, open up the possibilities. If they're not interested in the things that I find for them, that's perfectly okay. I don't force them to use anything that I find. Even if I'm excited about it, they can put those resources aside. They don't even have to look at them. But many, many times they are interested in the things that I find. Maybe because I'm excited about them, they pick up on that and they're willing to have a look. I have had my failures, I must admit, but generally my girls are open to my strewing. So I thought I would go and strew maths. But what do we put in front of our kids? It's very, very easy for science, history, that type of thing, because all I have to do is find a movie, for example, or a documentary. And then I just shout out, Hey girls, I'm going to watch a documentary about Renoir. Anybody want to join me? And soon we're all snuggled up on the sofa having a look at Renoir's life. But there aren't as many interesting maths videos around. There are a few, and I've put them all on my Pinterest maths board. But certainly I'm not tripping over them every day. And even the ones I have found, they can be a bit uh, complicated. Not necessarily appealing to a primary school child, or even you know a lower high school child. Of course we construe maths as games. But there's also a problem with games especially the ones that are designed to teach our kids maths. And I've written a blog post about this. The post is called The Problem with Disguising Maths Practice as Fun. I once bought a book containing loads of ideas for making maths games. I was very excited at the thought of printing off some paper game boards, finding a pack of cards, and saying to my children, Hey, would you like to play a game with me? I imagined them learning their times tables or common number additions while they were enjoying themselves. They wouldn't even know they were doing maths. They wouldn't even know they were doing maths. To me, that sounds a bit deceitful. Would I be tricking them into learning maths? This makes me feel uneasy. Maybe that's why I never actually used the book. It sat on our bookshelf until Andy discovered it. I could use this at school, my school teacher husband said with enthusiasm. 
Yes, it's the perfect book for schooling, but maybe not unschooling, where I want our children to pursue knowledge out of either love or need or both. I don't want to sneak it into them. The other day, my girls went junk mail catalog shopping. I suggested this activity. They voluntarily decided to go ahead and do it, but part of me disapproves of my own idea. Despite my girls enjoying themselves, catalog shopping is real. Many of us love browsing through the bright, glossy pages, dreaming about what we'd like to buy. We might even circle a few things we're going to get next time we go into town. We probably add up the cost of what we're going to purchase to make sure we can afford it. But my girls weren't really shopping; they were doing a maths exercise that had been disguised as fun. Gemma Rose really enjoyed choosing gifts for the family using the junk mail catalogs, but I don't really think she cared how much her purchases came to, even though she didn't complain about having to add them up. Actually, she was very clever. She left most of the addition to Sophie, who likes doing such things. The junk mail catalog shopping idea was a success. I'm not sorry I suggested it. So what's the problem? The problem is I know I could easily get carried away with similar ideas, like this one I tried yesterday. How about you both choose a new recipe from the Aldi cookbook? I said to Sophie and Gemma Rose. You could make a list of ingredients and then go to the Aldi website and work out the cost of everything. You can tell me how much money you'll need to make your dinners. Then we can go shopping, buy the ingredients, and you can cook the meals. Well, the girls liked the idea of choosing a new recipe. Their eyes lit up at the thought of shopping and preparing a meal of their own. But did they like the idea of pricing the ingredients and working out the cost of each meal? They didn't protest at first. Maybe they thought, "If I want to cook." I'm going to have to do the maths first. They had to fulfill a condition before getting to the part they were really interested in. But after a while, I could see Gemma Rose was getting frustrated by what was really a boring exercise. She knows I never work out the cost of all the ingredients in a recipe before I go shopping, so why should she? I came to the conclusion that giving her such exercises to do will eventually put her off maths. Maybe she will even come to hate it. I remember trying to teach Gemma Rose how to tell the time. That was a bit frustrating. I looked for fun activities to help her understand what time is all about. I thought she'd enjoy all the games that taught this skill, but she didn't. She ended up doing a lot of groaning and complaining. In the end, I bought her a clock and fixed it to her bedroom wall. I invited her to watch a few brain pop videos with me. I then stepped back and forgot all about time. That was a year and a half or so ago. The other day, I said, "Gemma Rose, can you tell the time?" She rolled her eyes and said, "Of course I can." I didn't need to find a fun way of teaching her about time. She learned about it herself when she realized she wanted to use her clock. I think back to those time learning games. Games aren't the same as adding up columns of numbers. They should be a lot more fun. So why didn't Gemma Rose enjoy them? Maybe it was all to do with the type of game I presented her with. We can use maths to play a game, 
or we can play a game to learn maths. There's a subtle difference. Both might improve our math skills, but the second kind of game is really a maths exercise in disguise. And kids are very clever. It doesn't take them long to discover our trickery. They know we don't really trust them to learn what they need to know when they need it. We want them to learn now. The sooner they have those maths facts memorized, the better. Our child might start to feel pressured. Now, I don't think we should stand back afraid to tempt our kids with some maths experiences. There are many wonderful ways of strewing maths. Maths is interesting. It can be fun purely for its own sake. Would you like to watch this video? It's called The Knight's Tour. I'm not exactly sure what it's about, but I found it on the Number Fire website, and it could be interesting. I discovered a new way to add a long list of numbers without getting into a muddle. Do you want to see? I found another video of the human calculator. Do you want to play Sudoku? I found a generator online. This murderous maths book is very funny. How about we have a look at it together? We can include our children in all our own real-life maths experiences. Do you want to help me sort out these bills? And our children will come across maths experiences all by themselves. I just did the measure ingredients for baking challenge for the baker's badge on DIY. Children will ponder and ask questions. Sophie might even have wondered, without any prompting from me, how much money she'd need to buy her junk mail catalogue gifts. Yes, there are so many wonderful ways to enrich our children's world with maths and they will either be fascinated by maths, or they will see a need for it, or perhaps both. We don't need to trick them into learning it. These are just a few of the things I've been pondering after I published my junk mail catalogue post. My words, would they think my question was a boring maths exercise in disguise, really bothered me afterwards. If I am being honest, I think that's exactly what I did present to my children. So how are my children going to learn the math skills they will need? If I observe and listen to my children, I should be able to find out. The best way to learn maths is to use it with your interests, says Sophie. But I don't mind adding up numbers for no particular reason, because I find numbers interesting. I don't, says Gemma Rose. Adding up lots of numbers is boring. You write it all on a piece of paper which is filed away and never seen again. What's the point? It helps you to learn maths. What if you need to add up something, I ask? Gemma Rose grins. I'll get somebody else to do it for me. She can add up really, says Sophie. I've seen her do it. She adds up her money all the time. She just doesn't want to do it for no reason. But some activities are useful. They help you learn maths. You practice what you need to know, I say. But Gemma Rose is not convinced. I'll just pick maths up as I go along, she says. You know, if I resist the temptation to pressure her, I believe she will. There's a few points in that story that I was thinking about as I was reading. The first thing that I thought about was how different Gemma Rose and Sophie are as far as maths is concerned. Sophie does enjoy maths. She thinks of it as a creative subject. 
She likes it for its own sake. She will think about numbers for no other reason than the fact that they are fascinating. Whereas Gemma Rose just does not want to know. Hardly any of my strewing is successful. She will pick up maths as she goes along, just as she said. Yeah, talking about strewing. I think we can get a bit heavy-handed with strewing at times, especially with maths. I did say that I strew things in front of my girls and they are free to accept or reject. And that is quite true. But I do think sometimes we get concerned and we strew a bit too much of it, looking out for all sorts of opportunities to point out the maths in the world around our kids. I don't think this is always necessary. For example, if I was doing my bills, I don't really have to think out loud so they can see what I'm doing. I think that's a bit too much. But we learn as we go along. As I said a few weeks ago, these early blog posts do show a progression in thought. How I have come to understand unschooling better as time has gone on. You also probably gathered that the catalogue shopping exercise, which I described in a previous blog post but I didn't actually read it out loud, was just simply me handing the girls some catalogues that landed in our mailbox. I gave them to the girls as I was running out the door somewhere and said, just imagine you are going to buy a gift for every member of the family and this is how much money you have to spend altogether. What would you buy? And I left them with that problem thinking they would have great fun. Well, they did have fun choosing the gifts, but working out all the maths to go with it? No, that wasn't as much fun at all. So I learned to be very careful about strewing games that I hoped would teach my girls maths. They weren't the answer that I was looking for. I turned my attention to something else, and that is real-life maths. Kids learn from every experience in their lives, and there's maths all around them. Surely they will pick up maths as they are living life. And this is very, very true, but I think we can be sidetracked by real-life maths resources. And this is what the next story is about. It's called Real-Life Maths Resources, Some Thoughts and Links. I often go looking for real-life maths resources to strew under the noses of my girls. Yes, I like to tempt them with different maths experiences, hoping they'll think, Wow, maths is so interesting and useful as well. So when I have a few free minutes, I can often be found at my computer googling the words real life maths or even real world maths. And as soon as I hit search, pages of resources appear on my screen. This might sound absolutely wonderful to anyone who is interested in unschool maths. But could there be a problem with real life maths resources? Real-life maths resources. I have nothing against the real-life bit. No, I am sure children learn maths from their own real-life experiences all the time. If they have a need for maths, they will soon learn how to manipulate those numbers and come up with a necessary answer. The maths is relevant. It has a use. There's a reason for working out what maths is all about. It's the resources bit I have trouble with. Real-life resources are different from personal real-life experiences. 
Some time ago, after googling real life maths, I ended up on the Yummy Math website. It says, We provide teachers and students with mathematics relevant to the world. Doesn't that sound good? If the maths is relevant to the world, it's useful, and therefore it's worth learning. I got excited. This is the perfect way for my children to learn maths. At least, that's what I thought at first. It wasn't long before I began to wonder whose world the maths is relevant to, and the answer came back, not my child's. It's relevant to someone else's. This doesn't mean I don't like the Yummy Maths site and other similar resources. I do think they're interesting, and so do my girls. We're enjoying discovering how other people use maths in the world. Someone has to calculate how much waste is produced by a cruise ship of tourists. Someone else has to keep an eye on the profits produced by various movies. Which studio is more successful and why? Then there are the people who are tracking the Ebola virus. They need to look at the mathematical figures to become informed about the risks, the likely causes, and the possible solutions to this medical emergency. And what about Mardi Gras beads? How many beads are distributed each year? How many are recycled? Someone works out these problems. Yes, real-life maths is fascinating. We've really enjoyed discovering what other people are using maths for. The Yummy Maths site sometimes has videos and other links which we can use if we want to find out more. And so maths leads us on other adventures. We found out that the environment might or might not be at risk from cruise ship waste, depending on whether you consult an environmentalist or a cruise ship owner. We looked at the Rotten Tomato ratings and discovered a few movies which might be worth watching, and a lot that are probably not worth bothering with. We decided we are safe from the Ebola virus, but learnt a lot about how it's transmitted. And we agreed we'd like to see a Mardi Gras parade one day and wear strings of beads. The bit I don't like about Yummy Math is the worksheets, the mathematical exercises which accompany the interesting stuff. They are really no different from traditional worksheets. They are just based on real-life situations. Now, it might be interesting working out how someone determined the volume of waste on a cruise ship. But when I see a whole page of similar problems, my heart sinks. This isn't real work. We're just working out something that someone else has already done to see if we can get the same answers. I'm guessing if my heart sinks at the thought of doing this, so will my child's. So do I think real-life maths resources aren't useful? Not at all. We dip into these resources all the time. We use what we like and ignore what we don't. Of course, if your children are learning maths in a more structured way, you might find Yummy Math and similar sites a wonderful alternative to traditional textbooks and workbooks. Relevant, real-life problems are always more interesting than made-up ones. And there is no doubt some children enjoy the challenge of working out maths problems. Even Sophie sometimes feels like doing this, but not all the time, and not if it is required. 
And then I listed in the post some of the maths resources that I'd found, real life ones. And some of them are good, like the number file videos on YouTube. So if you really enjoyed watching those, also by heart, her videos are very entertaining. I can't say that Gemma Rose liked any of them, though. I put down murderous maths books, but really, we put the whole series of them, and we read maybe the first few pages of several of them, and then decided that they were a failure. Somebody very excited about maths wrote them, but we didn't like the style at all. What I'm doing at the moment with maths is I'm just trying to observe all the everyday maths that we come across and all the maths that is associated with other things that we are learning. For example, when we were looking at some art documentaries, I googled the words art and maths and it was quite interesting to read about the most expensive paintings in the world, for example. Jimmeras really wanted to know about that, and so I labelled that note in my Evernote notebook as maths. I'm always thinking, is there any maths associated with this or that? And quite often there is. For younger children it's very easy. There are lots and lots of maths experiences around us that are easily recordable. Taking photos of such things as oven temperatures, speedometers in the car, volumes and other measurements as children are cooking, thermometers, scales, looking for different shapes around the house. Yes, we are surrounded by maths. It does get a bit more complicated when our children get older and we can't keep on recording all those experiences. It gets a bit monotonous. Surely there are other maths experiences that our children are coming into contact with. I've spoken about recording maths in other podcasts. Maybe I can find some links to relevant ones. I have a lot more blog posts that I could read out about maths, but time is getting on. If you do a search on my blog, either through the category maths or the tag maths, you will come across all those posts. A lot of them have resources that we have used. They may or they may not be good for stirring. I just want to finish with one last story because I think that it ties in with how I began this podcast, or at least this section of the podcast, about ideas. About when people say this is the proper way to unschool and really you should think about doing this because otherwise you're not really unschooling. The post is called, Can We Say We're Unschoolers If We Require Maths? Some people will tell you, if you unschool everything except maths, you're not really an unschooler. For how can we say to our kids, I trust you will learn everything you need to know, but not maths. We either trust or we don't. Nothing else makes much sense. So yes, I do understand that point of view. But before I upset anyone with my opinions, I want to say I also understand how difficult it is to let go of maths. If you look back through my posts or listen to my Unschool Maths podcast, you'll discover there was a time when I required my children to do some formal maths every day. I didn't trust enough either. 
Were we unschoolers, even though I required some maths? I certainly thought we were. I'd have been very upset if someone had suggested we weren't. Looking back to those days when my kids filled out worksheets or did online maths exercises, I know I still had lots to learn about the unschooling philosophy. But this doesn't mean we weren't on the unschooling pathway. The particular point we were at was the point just right for my family at that time. As I learnt more and listened to and observed my children, my understanding and trust grew, and I was able to throw off more of my insecurities and old ideas. But what would have happened if someone had stepped by after hearing about my insistence on maths and said, "You can't call yourselves unschoolers." I might have felt squashed and discouraged. I could have thought, if that's what unschooling is all about, then it's not for us, and given up. But no one challenged me. No one judged our unschooling, and so we have been able to explore and grow at our own pace. And our unschooling way of life has deepened. So if you're unschooling, except for maths, I think that's quite okay. I hope you'll stick around and keep sharing my posts. Perhaps join in with the discussion. Who knows? One day you might, like us, throw caution to the wind and let go further. I'd smile if you did, because I want everyone to experience what we have found. Good things should be shared. Letting the unschooling philosophy extend to maths and then to all parts of our life has been truly amazing for us. But if you decide to stay where you are, that's fine too. As Pat Ferenga said, "I define unschooling as allowing children as much freedom to learn in the world as their parents can comfortably bear." We're all different, and should be able to do what suits our families without criticism from anyone else. Being accepting and non-judgmental keeps the lines of communication open and allows us to continue the unschooling conversation in an encouraging. And supportive way, by sharing together, we all grow and learn. So, what do you think? P.S. You might say, "Why worry about labels? They are not important. What does it matter if people think we're really unschoolers or not?" And I agree with you. But labels can be helpful. How would we find each other when we feel like sharing with like-minded people if we didn't have a label to start with? Yes, sometimes I think that we have to go slowly. We can't adopt ideas that we do feel very uncomfortable with. I am in the middle of writing a blog post about this. I hope I get it finished. We can't really do what other people tell us to do, unless we do feel comfortable. I define unschooling as allowing children as much freedom to learn in the world as their parents can comfortably bear. Sometimes we do step a little bit outside our comfort zone, a little bit at a time, not all at once. The other words in that blog post, which I especially noticed, are these ones: "Who knows? One day you might, like us, throw caution to the wind and let go further. I'd smile if you did, because I want everyone to experience what we have found. Good things should be shared. Letting the unschooling philosophy extend to maths." And then to all parts of our life, has been truly amazing for us. Yeah, that's another idea that I wasn't comfortable with: radical unschooling.
Perhaps you feel the same way. But we got there step by step, and it has been absolutely wonderful. Maybe radical unschooling is further down your pathway too. Who knows? I am sure when I come to edit this podcast, I will think, oh, wow, I left this out and left that out. As I said, it always happens. Hurrying through a number of blog posts all at once in some ways hasn't been very satisfying because I've passed over posts I know have relevant points in them. But I can always come back next week and fill in the gaps. And you are always free to stop by my blog and share your own experiences, maybe ask a few questions about ours. It's always good to share, to mull things over together, to ponder and to grow and learn together. So that's my podcast for the week. Episode 98. Two more to go till I get to episode 100. And this makes me think about the future of this podcast. Am I going to go on past episode 100? Do people still want to listen? I hope that you will stop by and give me some feedback on that. Some of my friends have said they enjoy listening to my podcast each week. But if you have never stopped by my blog or my Facebook page, Stories of an Unschooling Family, and would like to give me your feedback, I would appreciate it very much. The other reason I'm thinking about the future of this podcast is because another year is almost up. I have been podcasting almost three years. And with the end of a podcasting year will come more fees for hosting for a new year. I have to pay um, for hosting on Podbean for all my podcasts. It's not a huge expense, but it is significant, especially when I think about how I'm spending family money on podcasting. I don't earn anything from podcasting, blogging, uh, vlogging at all. I spend quite a lot of money on hosting fees for my blog and podcasts. YouTube is free, of course. I also buy a lot of software, a lot of equipment, mics and software for making videos, all that type of thing. So I'm just doing some reassessing. Is there still a need for this podcast? Will you still listen past episode 100? I suppose I should ask myself, will I still have things to say? Will I still find a quiet time in the week to record an episode? I haven't quite worked that one out yet, but I'm sitting here recording this instead of going for my run today. I'm hoping to squeeze in a run before dinner. So that's it. Episode 98 is complete, except for the editing, of course. Got to go and sit down and do that, which takes quite a while. But hopefully this episode will be up just a few hours late. So I invite you to visit my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family, and also my Facebook page of the same name. Stop by, say hello, have a look at the show notes, share your experiences. It would be lovely to see you in both places. So I hope you have a wonderful week. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. And until next time, don't forget to trust, respect, and love unconditionally.